We've been talking about this idea of the crown and the kingdom, and so today I have the, the privilege to kind of begin to, to put a, a cap on this thing. Um, Shakespeare has this great quote. I don't know if we have a slide, but Shakespeare says this, that expectation is the root of all heartache. It doesn't take a genius to understand what he means, but I'll just ask the question, how many of you guys here have ever had an event that you were preparing for, you were studying for, you were working towards, and when that event took place, you had this great expectation, and then, and then it was just, anybody ever have that happen? Yeah, all of us in here have not had the reality of something meet the expectation we placed upon it. Am I right? And we've been let down, right? And I'm not trying to be sacrilege with this story at all. I'm, I'm not making fun of anything. I'm making light of it. Because I'm from South Louisiana, so I'm a Cajun boy. So I was raised a good Catholic, right? I know maybe some of you in here still have affections uh, for Catholicism. But I remember when I was in first grade... Every Wednesday, I got to skip P.E. class at Lawtel Elementary School because directly across the street from the gym was my catechism building. Anybody know that word, catechism? Every Wednesday for P.E., I would go across with my other fellow Catholic school boys and girls, and we would sit in a class for an hour where our nuns would teach us about doctrine and Catholic theology and Vatican II. No, they didn't teach us that, right? But they would teach us all these things. But what we were prepping for was our first communion, right? This was a big thing, man. Oh, my goodness, man. These nuns were just crazy. Hey, here's what's going to happen. And they would walk us through the process. They would tell us that, you know, I'd been to Mass quite a few times. And there was always this cool moment, like right in the middle of Mass, where the, the, the priest in his, you know, his priestly garb would lift up the bread and it was like, it was snack time right in the middle of the church, you know. And he'd say this really cool thing like, now we will have yum-yums. You know, he would, uh, it was just, you know, and he'd hand out these little wafers. But I couldn't do it, right. I couldn't do it. But my mom, you know, I'd watch and he'd lift up and he, it was like these little wafers. Like, you know, you know like, you ever heard Cheez-Its? These were like little Jesus like, that he'd hand out. And uh, we, this was my moment to, to not just spectate, but participate, right, in this. And then they started telling us about this, this Catholic mystery called transubstantiation. Anybody know what that big theological word is? Like here, when we take communion, we basically give you the bread, and it symbolically represents the body of the broken Christ for us, right? And then you dip it in the juice, and it symbolically represents the blood that Jesus shed. But no, no, no. Catholics had it locked down. Transubstantiation meant that that wafer literally turned into the flesh of Jesus, which freaked me out a bit as a first grader, but I was cool with it. I was like, all right, here we go. And you know, we had prepped for weeks and weeks, and the big night came. We went to the Catholic Church, St. Mary's Catholic Church, right there in Lawtel, Louisiana. My grandparents came, some of my aunts and uncles came, cousins came. I put on this suit my dad had from like 1946, you know, and uh, this is the best thing I had to wear. And man, I was nervous because for six weeks we were told this is the quintessential moment for the Catholic is to participate in this, the Eucharist. And Pastor Cindy, man, I was shaking, man, when it said 
would the, would the first communionites or whatever they called us please make their way? And I remember, man, like I was kind of shaking because this thing, this is a big moment. And I remember going, all right, I remember nun Sally telling us you either give him what? The hand or what? The tongue. So I'm walking up, man. It's the body of Jesus. I'm finally in. I'm going to be saved. And then I get up there, and here he is, the Holy Father, right? He goes, he pulls it out, and I did something like. <laughs> and he looks at me, he goes, uh, what's it going to be, son? And I remember he placed it on my tongue. And it immediately got stuck to the roof of my mouth. And I was like, ooh, man, we need to, we need to check the date on that Lord. Jesus a little stale today, Father. Did not meet my expectations at all. And I just kind of went back to my seat. I nailed down and I said like, you know, the rosary and then I said the, the Our Father. But it just did not meet the expectation. There was like this overpromise and this under-delivery, right? Same thing happens around the first century. That you have these Jewish leaders of the Mosaic Law who dress very pontifically. They were expecting their Messiah to come to rescue them, to set them free from Roman oppression. Right, there was an expectation being built up. But also you had the Jewish commoner, also under Roman oppression, who lived underneath that Mosaic law and the Roman law as well. And there was this building and building and this building of anticipation and expectation that their Messiah would come and do what? Overthrow those darn Romans, right? They had an expectation, and especially when Jesus arrives on the scene and he's doing all of these miracles, he's raising people from the dead, he's changing water into wine, the lame can now walk, the blind can now see, and people are beginning to look to go, well, wait a minute. I thought our king was going to come and establish his kingdom with what? Like power and might and majesty. And Jesus begins to upset the, re the expectations of what they had for him and what they had for the kingdom. Does that make sense? So let's keep going. And while we try to make sense of it, we know that we look at both the Jewish commoner and the, the Jewish lawgiver as being distinctly different. Like the Jewish mosaic leaders of the law were very stringent and, and whatever, and the Jewish commoner was forced to live under this law. They both had same expectations that God would come and set them free from their oppressors. And here's the thing. Jesus' kingdom was the reality of the gospel that was going to be counterintuitive to what these guys, both the parties, were expecting. And I have some questions. There's a lot that we can talk about what was expected and what Jesus brought. But there are three main questions that I want to ask today. And here they are. I want to ask what the kingdom would look like. This was a question about an expectation that both parties had, the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish commoners, was like, what would this kingdom look like? When would this kingdom be established? And then who would the citizens of this kingdom be? And so those are the three questions I'm going to tackle, that their expectations did not meet the reality that Jesus brought. So here's the first one. The Jews were expecting a kingdom of serving leaders, right? Right? They walked around high and holy, high and mighty, 
very, very distinctly dressed. They did not look like everyone else. And they expected to be served, right? Because they had the keys to the kingdom. They had the knowledge of interpretation, the hermeneutics of the Mosaic law. And they expected everyone to kind of obey what they said in their interpretation. But yet Jesus' reality is this. The reality is that Jesus says, no, I'm not setting up a kingdom of serving leaders, serving the powerful. I'm setting up a kingdom of servant leadership. A kingdom where he says, if you want to be the, the, the ruler of all, you have to be what? The servant of all. If you want to be first in my kingdom, you have to be last. And this upsets the whole dynamic of expectation. Why? Because how do we live? We live to serve rulers and masters, right? We try, we try to elevate ourselves into those positions of power. And we, we put on the facade that, oh, if I... If I rise to this level of financial stability, I'll do good with my money. And all that stuff is nice. But the idea here is Jesus says, no, 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 no. Servant leadership is where it's at. You see, the idea here is that the Jews expected it to continue to be this, this reign or this rule of law. And Jesus says, no, I come to bring this reign of love. And he, in fact, he gives us this model in Luke 17, the story of the, uh, the ten lepers. Anybody familiar with that story? Because everybody in the Jewish kingdom that they were expecting would have their place, would have their position. The Jewish leaders of the law would be right under God, the king, and then the commoners would follow suit. And everybody had to know and be in their place. And it was just that way as we see it in, in the Gospels and we see it in the New Testament. Even sick people had their place, right? Lepers would have to clothe themselves in black cloth and stay something like 30 feet away from people. And as people would pass by, they would have to say, unclean, unclean, so that we knew who they were, so we could keep our distance. But yet Jesus in Luke 17 is walking by, and instead of crying, unclean, unclean, these lepers see Christ and they cry out for mercy. And Jesus, instead of saying, hold on, wait, you're not, you're not participating the right way. You're supposed to cry out unclean. Do you not know the rules of this kingdom? Do you not know your place? No, no, Jesus says what? Come here. He says, go now to the priest. You're healed. Go show yourself to the priest so that he may look at you and you could take the black cloth off and you don't have to kind of stay ostracized from the rest of the public. And the ten walk away, but one of them recognizes what's happened. That he is healed. That if you know anything about leprosy, leprosy decays the skin, decays the flesh of the human body. And this guy who's probably had leprosy most of his life realizes that he is healed. The leprosy is no longer spreading. And he runs back to Christ and he falls down and he worships him. And Jesus looks and says, Weren't there 10 of you guys? And one's come back. And he says this really strange word in the Greek. He says, your faith in me has made you whole. While those other guys were healed, Jesus goes beyond his position that they recognized into serving this guy. And he goes, your faith has made you whole. 
And he doesn't tell him he has to go back to the priest because at this moment, many scholars agree that that word used in the Greek there does not mean just healing, but restoration. That where skin had fallen off, skin had immediately been repaired. Where a nose was removed because of leprosy, it was back in action. If any limb was gone, boom, it was back. That he was not only healed, he was fully restored and made whole in that moment. You want to talk about the miraculous, that was the miracle that took place. You know, I have my friends who are very conservative theologically who just kind of want to read the scripture and say, eh, well, and they say this thing to me. They go, you know, Troy, healing is not the whole gospel. And I look and I go, you're right. Healing is not the whole gospel. To which I retort, but the gospel is not whole without healing. In that as servant leaders, we are not supposed to be out asking people to bow to our every whim because we have it right and we hold the righteousness of the kingdom of God. No, we go out and we serve and we love regardless. And it's almost as though we need people to put their sackcloths on again and yell out what they are that we've labeled them. Hey, I'm Republican. Hey, I'm Democrat. Hey, I'm gay. To where we recognize them so we can say, yeah, keep your distance. That's not me. Instead of coming to them and serving them regardless of their affiliation and restoring them to wholeness in the way that God intended them to be. This is what we're called to do. The kingdom is not about serving leaders. It's about servant leaders. I remember I was in Louisiana in a very impoverished area. I was a children's pastor. This is my first job in ministry. They threw me to the wolves. You know, <laughs> five-year-olds. And I remember going into trailer parks with my church van, picking up vanfuls of kids to come to my children's ministry. And I would knock on the door. I remember I had beer cans thrown at me. I had doors slammed in my face. It was crazy. But I wanted to make relationships not just with the kids, because most of these parents didn't really give a crap where their kids went. They were like, yeah, take them, bring them back after church. They would let them jump in a van with a stranger. But I wanted to make relationships, and there was this, this group of families that, that I just came to love. And I asked them, I said, hey, I know that, that, that Chelsea and Destiny and Hope are all coming to church, but like, could I do like a Bible study for, the, for your adult family like on a Tuesday night? And they were like, we'd love it. And there was this one little girl who would come every Sunday, and it was strange. Her name was Destiny. Think about that name. And she'd wear these black gloves on her hand, these black you know, like the surgical gloves? Every Sunday she had them on. And I often wondered, like, is this like a fashion statement I'm not aware of, you know, amongst third graders? But one night at this Bible study, I remember I met her, her, her mom, Glenda. And Glenda was a single mom living in a 12 by 10 mobile home. And I asked Glenda, I said, Glenda, what's up with Destiny's hand? And she says, well... Let me let you see. And so she calls Destiny, and this little third grade girl comes in. And Glenda goes, Destiny, show, show, show Pastor Troy your hand. And she pulls off this glove. And growing on this little girl's hand, it's like black mold. And she goes, look. And she points, and it was growing on the roof of her mouth. That she could not even touch her friends in playing tag without having to put these gloves on because the doctors didn't know if it was contagious or not. They had tried everything. They tried every cream, every sort of chemical. Nothing would work. 
for a year and a half, this little girl had that. And I was like, whoa. She goes and she runs outside, puts her gloves back on, plays with her cousins and her neighborhood friends from the trailer park. I start this Bible study, and I'm trying to be all intellectually sound and theologically astute. But I kept hearing this voice. I want to heal that little girl. I want to restore that little girl. And I can't, I can't even do the Bible study. And I said, guys, I'm sorry. And there's like 15, 20 people in this room, in this little jam-packed in this trailer. And I said, I think God wants to do something amazing in Destiny's heart and life. And I said, tell her to come in. So they yell out the window, Destiny, come inside. And she runs in. And I said, I want you to take off those gloves. Let me see those things. She shows me her hands. And immediately I feel the sense of the Holy Spirit go, grab her hands and pray for her. So I reach to grab her hands and she pulls back. She goes, no, no, Pastor T, don't touch it. You'll get it. Like fear almost seized me, right? And I went, I'm not getting anything. And I grabbed her hands. And I said the most incredible prayer I've ever prayed. I said, Jesus, heal this little girl. In your name, amen. Boy, that was profound, right? Mind blown. And she sticks her gloves back on. She's like, thank you. And she runs outside. I was like waiting for it to like, I'd have been like, yeah, but it didn't happen. Like they didn't go away, just like right there. She went back and played. I preached. Everybody was crying. I was crying. The next morning, I show up in my office at 10 a.m. I walk upstairs into my, my children's pastor room. And Linda, who was our... Uh, our secretary of function, she goes, Troy, are you in yet? I said, it's 10 o'clock, I'm, I'm here, what's up? She's like, this woman keeps calling for you. Do you, do you know a, a lady named Glenda Daigle? I went, yeah, send her through. So I pick up the phone, I said, hello, she's on the other end of the line. She goes, Troy, they're gone. And I went, wait, are the kids missing? <laughs> what, what happened? She's like, no, Destiny's hands, you got it. I threw the phone down. I jumped in my car, a 1985 Volvo, and I sputtered <laughs> to the trailer park. And I walk in, and this is like, this is, this is a Wednesday, right? She kept the kids from school because, and Destiny is like running around. She's like, la, 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 look. And I look at her hands, and they look like mine. And she goes, look. The roof of her mouth was as clear as mine is right now. And I was like, oh, What? So I called my pastor, I called Jay Miller, my pastor, I said, you got to get over here. He runs over, we tell him the story. Because of that, the next Sunday, eight rows in my church were full of people from that trailer park who heard that story. Yeah, healing is not the whole gospel, but the gospel is not whole without healing, without going to those people who were broken, hurting, sick, in need and reaching our hand out to them when, when our society, our culture, our upbringing, our tradition says you shouldn't touch them. They're unclean. And I say, no, God loves you. And I'm going to be an ambassador of that love by serving you regardless. People's lives were restored, not just healed. The next question. They ask, when? When is this kingdom going to come? 
And both the Jewish commoner and the Jewish lawgiver said, the only way it's going to come is through political revolution. We've got to take over this government. We've got to legislate morality. No, it's not. Jesus says, no, it doesn't come by political revolution. My kingdom's coming by what? Personal repentance. That's how my kingdom is going to be restored and implanted into this kingdom that you call whatever. It's not through political revolution. It's through personal repentance. And it's true that today many Christians are vying for powers of political office because they want to make changes. But listen, man, let me tell you something. I remember in a, in a philosophy of politics class I taught, this one kid steps up and he's like, well, and I'm talking about these different political theories of philosophy, of course. And I have to tell my kids all the time, just because I teach Marx doesn't mean I agree with him. I still just teach the principles. And this one kid steps up and he goes, well, I just think we need to bring our country back to a Christian nation when God was first. And I said, no, that's a great idea. When was that? Was that when we enslaved black folks? Like, is that when we, no? Or, or when, when we had to have two different uh, water fountains for people of color? And pe is that the Christian nation? Because that's quite a ways back. Oh, wait, or is it the one that oppressed women, that women didn't have a voice or a right to vote or equal pay? Like, which, which, which epic in history are we going back to that you found so Christian about this nation? And I said, let me tell you the word Christian means Christ-like or little Christ. And let me, let me just tell you, and maybe this might be illuminating for many people in here, maybe not. Uh, Jesus was not American. <laughs> he, he didn't... He, he, he didn't speak English. Speak my language. No, he didn't speak English. He didn't eat at McDonald's. He never had drive-through. But let me tell you who he was. And this is what I told this kid in class. I said, Jesus is a man who dies on a cross for the same dudes who nailed him to it. I said, that has been the foreign policy of no country that has ever existed. That has been the foreign policy of no country that has ever existed. And for good reason. Because changing laws will not draw people to change lives. Look at this verse. I'll tell you what will. Romans 2.4. Do you not know that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? Not God's wrath. Not the legislation of morality, not controlling the government. It is God's kindness through his citizens of his kingdom to those who are lost in that kingdom that will bring people to know and love God. And if you disagree with me, what are you going to do with this verse? It is the core of the gospel, not control of government that leads people to change lives. And lastly, the, four, the third question that was expected is who will these citizens be? And you know what? For the Jewish people, they thought it was going to be exclusively Jewish. How wrong they were. How wrong they were. Jesus says, no, it's not a kingdom that's exclusively Jewish. It's a kingdom of those who follow Jesus. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you follow Jesus. You follow Jesus. And I often have to ask my, my, more, my, my more theologically astute friends, 
when they start bringing Paul in. Like, I read Paul. I think Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit as it came upon him. But I'll often ask this. I said, are we trying to make Jesus fit into Paul? Or do we need to try to make Paul fit into Jesus' gospel when we begin to interpret this? Because that is the core. I follow Jesus. And that is who I, that is who I turn to. And if I have something that I'm reading in scripture that I'm like, man, I will turn to Christ and say, how should I, how should I interact? Full of grace, full of truth. John 1.14. Jesus says, it is a kingdom of those who follow me. It is not just a kingdom of whatever. Look what this verse says. Let us remind you of the greatest verse ever. For God so loved what? The world. The world. God just doesn't love America. In fact, I'll go on to say that God loves the enemies of America just as much as he loves Americans. That there is nothing I could do to make God love me any more than he does right now. There was nothing I could do to make him love me any more. I could preach the greatest sermon in the planet and feel like somehow I'm elevated within the reign of God's love. And God goes, no, I loved you when you sucked in sermons as well. Exactly the same. But the opposite is true. There is nothing I could do to make God love me any less. There is nothing I could do to make him love me any less. And when you grab onto that truth that God loves the world, and people ask me, well, do you believe in hell? Of course I do, but I believe that God loves every person that is there as much as he loves every person that is here. That there is no distinction or divide between who he loves and how he loves. We kind of have the choice in the matter. Luke 17 says this, and I'm going to close, and the band can kind of, I guess, get ready and we're going to eat some communion. Luke 17 says this, Jesus is asked by these Jewish leaders when the kingdom would come, how the kingdom would come, would come and who would be in it. And Jesus says something very, very remarkable. He says, do you not know that the kingdom of heaven is within you? The kingdom of God is within you. Now that within you is a strange word in the Greek. It means two different things. But very similar. So whichever way you want to interpret that, this is what it means. That the kingdom is always already here surrounding you. Read Psalm 139. That should screw up a lot of people's theology. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your presence, O God? If I make my, head, my bed in the highest of heavens, you are where? You are already there. You, not only are you there, you are always already there. And if I make my bed in the pit of hell, you are what? Always already there. Colossians says that everything that exists, exists only by the being of God's presence. So God's presence, I've heard this taught in some theology, that hell is the absence of God. Wrong. Hell's existence depends upon the existence of God and his presence there. So God is fully everywhere that we can imagine that there is a there. The kingdom of God is within you. That means it's always already here and active, but it also means it lies within us. And for some of us, the kingdom is just dormant, waiting to be ignited, waiting to be reawakened by something that ignites us towards a common cause, a passion. 
Whatever your passion is, let it be about kingdom things because the kingdom is within you. My prayer is that God somehow uses this message to just ignite us to go out into our communities and just tell people about the gospel that is the core of the kingdom. It's not about politics. It's not about government control. It's not about having the right interpretation. It's not about right and wrong. It's about loving people when they least expect it and even more so when they least deserve it because that's what God did for me. You love people when they least expect it and when they least deserve it. That shows the world that you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Jesus says this, this is how they will know that you are a follower of me. By the way you what? Love one another. Let's pray. Awesome God. I pray that somehow my expectations would begin to meet the reality of who you are. God, that the expectations I have of the kingdom being manifest on this earth would meet the reality of your power, of your kingdom's cause in my heart and life, God. That I would be not only just a citizen, but God, an active citizen promoting and propagating the truth of the gospel that God loves the world. So, Father, I just pray that you would change our hearts. Work in our hearts and minds, God, that as we leave this place, we know we're stepping back onto a mission field. We don't have to fly out of a mission field to get to another one. We are smack dab in the middle of one where we are right now. But, God, let the truth that your kingdom is always already around us and it's always already within us, God. Let that truth change us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.